Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Romans chapter 2. So let's just do a little bit of recap. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, Paul is talking to the Gentiles. And he says, hey Gentiles... You're depraved and wicked because you've suppressed the truth and unrighteousness and you're idolaters. God's wrath is going to be poured out upon you if you don't repent, Gentiles. Okay. Then last week, he turned his attention to the Jews. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 16, he said, Jews, you're just as bad because you're not obeying the Ten Commandments that you have They don't have the Ten Commandments of Gentiles, even though they're still guilty for sinning. You've got God's law, and you've broken it. Okay, So he he aims his gun barrel at the Gentiles. He aims his gun barrel at the Jews. Now, at this point, the Jewish people in his audience are standing up, seething mad at Paul, and they're saying, now, wait a minute, Paul. You can't possibly treat us the same way you treat the Gentiles. Have you not forgotten two important things about us as Jews, Paul? Number one, we have the Ten Commandments. We have the law. That's a privilege. And number two, we have circumcision. They're uncircumcised. They're barbarians. So we are God's chosen, special, privileged people. How dare you compare us to those Gentile, uncircumcised outsiders? And so Paul's going to anticipate that objection, and he's going to address it to these Jewish people who are self-righteous and confident in their Jewishness. The two big things that made a person take pride in their Jewishness, I guess, would be they had the Old Testament and they had circumcision. Okay, so let's pick up in chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. This is the Jews' confidence in the law. Now, when I speak of the law here, and when Paul speaks of the law, he's predominantly talking about the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. The, sum, the summary of, of the Old Testament law. Okay, so let's pick up in verse 17, Romans chapter 2. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Okay, so what Paul is going to do here is he's going to give eight descriptions of these self-righteous Jews. And he's just kind of going to stack up on these privileges and say, listen, you guys are privileged because of these things that you have in your life. So let's, let's go down this list. Number one, you pride yourself in being called a Jew. Look at verse 17. If you call yourself a Jew, 
Okay, that was a special title in having that name. I am Jewish. I can trace my roots to ethnic Israel. I call myself a Jew. I take great pride in that, Paul's saying to them. And then number two, he's saying, you rely on the law of Moses given at Mount Sinai. Notice the words there. You rely on the law. What does it mean to rely? You're banking on the law of God as your identity. You're putting all your hope in your ability to keep the Ten Commandments. You're relying upon that. So you're taking pride. I'm a Jew. I'm relying on the Ten Commandments to save me. And then, number three, you brag about being God's people. You boast in God. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing to boast in God, but they were using it as this, hey, I'm the special Jewish person, and I'm God's people, and therefore I'm immune to any type of charge, Paul. You can't touch us because we're God's people. How dare you compare us to the Gentiles? And Paul says, number four, you know his will. You're not in the dark. You have the Old Testament. You've got God's written word. You you know clearly what God's word says. The Gentiles don't have God's will. They're living in darkness. You have God's written word. You approve, number five, what is excellent. That's in verse 18. You know His will and you approve what is excellent. Again, you have a proper view of God's law, God's standard. You know it's excellent. Number six, you've been instructed from God. The law. Think about these Jews. From childhood, they had learned the Old Testament in the synagogues. Gentiles hadn't. So you guys are priding yourselves on calling yourselves Jews. You're, you're boasting in being a Jew. You're relying upon the law of Moses. You know God's will. You've been instructed in the law. And then the last thing, he's, or the seventh thing he says here is, I'm paraphrasing it this way, you know the Old Testament so well, you could probably teach others. In other words, you could teach these pagan Gentiles the Old Testament in your sleep because it's so familiar to you. Notice what he says there. Verse 19, if you are sure that you, you yourself are a guide to the blind, he's talking about the Gentiles, a light to those who are in darkness, instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, you, you, you can teach these pagan Gentiles in your sleep the law of God because you've grown up in the church hearing the word of God preached and taught in the synagogues. And then number eight, he says, ultimately, ultimately, you have the embodiment of truth. Look at there at the end of verse 20. Having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Jews, you have a sufficient and trustworthy written word of God, and you have no excuse for not knowing what He expects of you. As a matter of fact, if we could take it further, probably could, Paul could probably say to his audience, okay, list off the Ten Commandments for me, and they could list them off by rote, just off the top of their lips. They knew God's commandments. They had been instructed. And at this point, what are the Jews doing? Amen. That's right, Paul. We are Jewish. We are God's people. Yeah, we have the privilege of growing up in church and hearing the law taught. We're God's privileged people. We have been taught. We have been instructed. And, by, and a matter of fact, we can teach those pagan Gentiles in our sleep. We're so familiar with God's word. Amen, Paul. Thank you for, thank you for bolstering our confidence. This is who we are. Okay. 
I'm going to stop and ask some application questions because sometimes this is foreign to us because how many people here are Jewish persons putting their faith in the law back in the time of the Roman church? Anybody here? No. So let's make some practical application questions to us, the principle that Paul's getting at. So I'm going to ask this question. Do you truly appreciate the privilege of being in a church where God's word is taught? Does our knowledge of the truth lead to humility or does it puff us up with pride? Those of you that have grown up in church, what can you say? I've had the privilege of being in church since I was a kid. I've sat under good teaching. I've sat under good preaching. I've been to vacation Bible school. I know the Bible like the back of my hand. If somebody came up and asked me what the Ten Commandments were, I could probably tell them. If somebody came up and asked me what it meant to be a Christian, I could tell them I've had the privilege of growing up in church. And you can do one of two things with that. You can, it can lead to pride. I'm better than them out there because I grew up in the church. And I know all this information and I'm better and, and I've arrived and I've got all this knowledge and, and look at how great I am because of all the biblical knowledge I have. Or you could take the other attitude and say, wow, God has sure blessed me when I didn't deserve to have to grow up in the church. And look at the knowledge he's given me and it's not so I can be puffed up with knowledge. It should lead me to humility. I'm no better than them out there. It's just that God's given me a privilege that I didn't deserve and, and, and I'm thankful for that privilege of being in a context where I can know God's word. So what Paul is doing is he's saying, listen, these self-righteous Jewish people that took pride in what they're doing, they're not practicing what they preach. Look, look at it. Look at it. He says in verse, uh, here we are. Well, he starts to ask, well, basically, look at verse 23. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. In other words, you're so prideful, Jewish people, in your background, in your knowledge, in your position, in your privilege, that you're not practicing what you preach. And so what Paul's going to do is he's going to ask them five rhetorical questions to expose their self-confidence and their hypocrisy. So what are these questions that Paul's going to ask them? Let's just look in our, let's just look in our Bible, okay? So Paul's going to just kind of lay it, Paul's laying it on them, okay? So look in verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Hey, if you're going to teach other people, God's word, you're sure not teaching yourself because you're breaking God's law. You, you need to teach yourself first before you start teaching others because you're not living up to what you're teaching others. Okay, next thing he says, number two. Okay, you preach against stealing. Do you steal? Well, you're up there. You're, 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 you're firing against people that steal. Thou shalt not steal. And you're preaching against stealing. But when nobody's looking, you're over here acting like a thief, stealing. So you're not practicing what you preach. You're, you're breaking one of the Ten Commandments that you're railing against. It's kind of like the, the televangelist or the pastor that stands up and preaches against adultery, but all the while is having 
an affair on the side. You know, he's, he's up there, you know, or, or the, the person that preaches against some sin publicly and he gets all fiery and then yet secretly he has that same sin. Okay. Number three, you're so confident about telling people to be sexually pure and not committing adultery. Look at verse 22. You who say one must not commit adultery, you're committing adultery. You're having affairs left and right, but you're, you're sure loud preaching against it. You're really loud preaching against stealing, but behind the scenes you're stealing. You're really loud preaching against adultery, but behind the scenes you're committing adultery. Now, the fourth one is a hard one to understand, so I'm going to do my best. So at the end of verse 22, you who abhor or hate idols, you're robbing temples. Now, what in the world does it mean to rob a temple? Now, we know the Jews prided themselves on being what we call monotheistic. They worshiped one true God. And this is in Rome where there's all the pagan deities, the Greek gods and goddesses. And so the Jewish person would say, I hate that pagan mythology. I can't stand Zeus and Diana and Hermes and Poseidon and all the Greek gods and goddesses. I can't stand the idolatry. But what does it mean to go rob a temple? Does that mean that they literally went in and started robbing the, the items out of the temple? There's a lot of different thoughts that the commentators have. We really don't know. But it could be that they actually went in because they knew the Gentiles valued those statues, those idols. It could have been they went in and as they were in the marketplace or they went in the temple, they swiped one of those little statues they hated so much and turned around and sold it for a profit because they didn't care about it. All they cared about was getting money from it, but they knew the Gentile pagans would want it. We really don't know. Whatever was happening, they were, they were being a stumbling block to the Gentiles. Okay? And then the fifth one, that's the one I talked about earlier, the biggest one. Verse 23, you boast in the law, but you dishonor God's law by breaking the law. You're so confident that you have the Ten Commandments. You're so confident in your ability to know God's Word, but yet you are breaking the law. Now, what was this causing the Jews to do to the Gentiles? Or let's ask another way. How are the Gentiles viewing these self-righteous, hypocritical... So Paul's exposing hypocrisy, right? You're not practicing what you preach. You're, you're railing against adultery, but you're committing adultery. You're railing against stealing, but you're stealing. You're, you're touting your privileged position, knowing God's word, but over here you're, you're sinning behind the scenes. You're bold-faced hypocrites. And here's what Paul says. Look at verse 24. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So what does that mean? Because you are so self-righteous in your ability to keep the law and in preaching to others and outwardly looking so religious, yet you do the very things you preach against. Jews, here's what you're doing. You are ruining your testimony among the pagan Gentiles who are outsiders looking in on your life and they're only seeing hypocrisy. The Gentiles, the, the, Paul's strong, he says, the name of the Lord is blasphemed. God's name is cursed. They, they look at, the Gentiles look at you Jews who are spouting off how much you obey the law, but then you're breaking it flagrantly. The Gentiles are looking at you and saying, that's, 
That's the most hypocritical group of people I've ever seen. I don't want anything to do with their God if that's the way they live. Now, do you hear people say that about Christians today sometimes? This comes from Ezekiel 36.22. God said in the Old Testament, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you've profaned among the nations to which you came. Okay, let's just stop for a moment. All throughout the Old Testament, God had called Israel to be a holy people, to be a display people, to display His glory to the nations, to be a light to the Gentiles. And what did they do? They squandered it. They profaned it. They, they lived just like the pagan nations around them. And so God says, you've profaned my name. What does it mean to profane God's name? What does profane mean? We call it profanity today. But what, is, what does profane mean? It's the same thing Paul says here. You've blasphemed God's name. It's basically you've taken God's name and you've, and you've taken it through the dirt. You've taken it through the mud. You've smeared God's holy name by your hypocrisy. Okay, So this is what the Jews were doing. They were saying, hey, we can teach these Gentiles in our sleep. We've grown up in church. We know all the right answers. We know the truth. We're God's chosen people. But yet, we're so loud and proud about how good we're doing these things. But behind the scenes, they're sinning just as badly. And Paul's calling them out on it and says, listen, what you're doing in this major hypocrisy is you're blaspheming God's name to the Gentiles that are looking at you. Okay, so what's the application for us today? Okay, so keep talking about application. This, this, is, this is a tough one. Can we be so self-righteous as Christians who preach against sin, call out the culture for its depravity, and yet at the same time actually do the same things they do? Are we marked by repentance and being different from the world, or do we look just like the world? That's a stinging reality because I'm afraid oftentimes, what do we as Christians do? The big bad world out there is so bad, look at them, they're going to hell in a handbasket, and we're so focused on how depraved the world is out there, do we ever stop and look at our own lives? Do we ever have hypocrisy? Are we... Are we Guilty of doing the same things? So here's the question. The question is not, will you have a testimony? You're going to ruin your testimony. The question is not, will you have a testimony? The question is, will you have a positive testimony or a negative testimony? If you claim the name of Christ, you're going to have a testimony. One way or the other. Because there's always going to be somebody on the outside watching you. And what are they looking for? They're waiting for you to what? Slip up. Now, I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on you and say you have to live a perfect life here. What I'm saying is sometimes we as Christians can be so self-righteous and so prideful and so arrogant in our knowledge of the truth that that never leads to humility and brokenness and repentance, and we end up looking just like the world that we're condemning. Does that make sense? So these Jews basically have elevated their status as God's chosen people and their knowledge of the Ten Commandments 
to this highest place so that we know the truth. But yet Paul says, you're breaking the, you're breaking the Ten Commandments left and right. You may have learned, Paul says, you may have learned these from childhood in the synagogue and you may be able to teach these Gentiles in your sleep and you may have all this knowledge in your head and you may be very vocal against preaching against what these bad things these people are doing, but you are ruining your testimony before the Gentiles. So Paul, first of all, hits towards the first marker that the Jews prided themselves in and that was their obedience to the law. We've got the law. We've got the Old Testament. We're God's chosen people because out of all the peoples of the world, we were given His written word. We know the truth. We're relying upon the law. Okay? But then there was a second thing that made it even more concrete, especially for males. There was an outward sign that showed you were truly God's people. What was that? Circumcision. Okay, The cutting off of the foreskin. And so Paul's going to be, okay, you think I'm done? Let's, let's, just, let's just pick on the circumcision aspect here, okay? So the, th- the second thing that Paul's going to start launching in on is the Jews' confidence in circumcision. Okay, so this is in verses 25 through 29. He's just launched into them on their prideful self-hypocrisy in preaching the law and elevating the law but yet breaking it left and right. So now he's going to talk about circumcision. And he's really going to start, this is going to be, I don't think we understand the full weight of what a Jewish person during Paul's day would have felt when he's preaching this to them or when they received this letter. They would be seething mad at Paul. Like they would be saying, them are fighting words, Paul. We want to take you out in the parking lot and rough you up because how dare you say these things to us? I mean, you're, you're going right to the heart of our issue here. So let's pick up in verse 25. For circumcision, okay? So he's going to address the issue of circumcision. For circumcision is indeed is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, which what did he just say? You guys have been breaking it left and right. Your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Ooh, <laughs> you're acting just like a Gentile. It doesn't even mean anything. So if a man who's uncircumcised, that would be a Gentile, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Circumcision. Now, this is just a little bit of information that maybe you didn't know. The Jewish rabbis of, Jesus, of Paul's day had this teaching. Okay, the Jewish rabbis. This is not in the Bible, but this is what the Jewish rabbis said. They had this teaching that Abraham, Father Abraham, the patriarch, would stand at the gates of hell to make sure that after a Jewish person died who was circumcised, he would not enter into hell. In other words, they had a rule. No circumcised male would ever enter hell because Abraham would stand there and prevent that from happening. So what does circumcision do for you? It's my get out of hell free card. Snip it and not have to go burn. Okay, so I mean, that's kind of a crude way of putting it. But in other words, no circumcised Jewish male would ever go to hell. So think about it this way. 
What's a Jewish person thinking? If I keep the Ten Commandments, I'm good. If I'm circumcised, I'm good. And what's Paul saying? If you break the Ten Commandments, you're toast. Even if you're circumcised and don't keep the Ten Commandments, you're toast. You Jews are just as guilty as the Gentiles, regardless of whether you have an outward sign of circumcision or you have the law. Now let's just talk about the importance of circumcision because we don't quite understand the covenant of circumcision, the covenant sign of circumcision. Um, Nowadays in our culture, it's more of a medical and hygienic procedure uh, done to baby boys when they're born. But back then it was very, very important. So let's go in our Bibles back to Genesis 17 because Genesis 17 is where the Lord gives Abraham the covenant sign of circumcision. So let's jump out of Romans and and go back into our Old Testament, uh, back into Genesis uh, 17. Okay. Let's just pick up in verse 9. We're just going to go 9 through 14, okay? Genesis 17, 9 through 14. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. Okay. Let me share with you three aspects of the sign of circumcision that we see here in Genesis 17. Okay. First... Circumcision symbolized inclusion into the covenant family of God that He established by grace alone. So let me ask you a basic question. Did being circumcised save Abraham? Let me ask it to you. Does being baptized save you? What saves you or who saves you? Jesus saves you by grace alone through faith alone. God had made a covenant back in Genesis 15 with Abraham where God entered into a relationship with Abraham and in a sense saved Abraham by grace, chose Abraham, called Abraham. And then afterwards, God gives him the covenant sign. It's an outward sign of what had already been taking place as far as God's grace in Abraham's life. So what's the covenant sign in the Old Testament that you belong to God's people? Circumcision. What's the covenant sign in the New Testament for us that shows that we belong to God's people? Baptism. And thankfully, baptism is not just for men, but for men and women. Because back then, so baptism is the covenant sign today of an inward reality of God's salvation by grace. So 
Circumcision was a sign, an outward sign of an inward reality. So Abraham was already saved by grace. So here's the point when you come back to what Paul's talking about. The fact that you're merely circumcised physically doesn't mean anything if you don't have a saving relationship by grace with Christ alone first. It's just merely an outward sign. Now, the reality was is that for Abraham, it was a sign that God had entered into a covenant with him. So what I'm saying is you can, go, you can do an outward sign. Like you can, you can say the sinner's prayer or walk down the aisle to the altar or you can raise your hands at a revival. You can get dunked in a tank. You can go through confirmation. You can do all these outward things and still not be saved. Those things don't save you. Jesus saves you by grace alone. Okay? Now, second, and this is just medically, hygienically, circumcision indicated a need for cleansing. Okay? There's a cleansing aspect involved in circumcision. The hygienic act of removing the foreskin symbolized how the Israelites needed to be purified from sin in order to be God's holy people. They needed to have sin and pollution and uncleanliness cut out of their lives and circumcision symbolized the reality. So, not only was it an outward sign that God had already saved you, but it was also a sign of purification. God had cleansed you. The need for cleansing, the need to have your sins cleansed. But here's another important thing. To not be circumcised meant to be cut off from God's people. Okay, look at verse 14 there in Genesis 17, 14. Any uncircumcised male who was not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He's broken the covenant. Now, to be cut off from God's people meant under condemnation. You were not part of God's family. So it was an important thing in the Old Testament to be circumcised. Okay, so carry that into the New Testament. And Paul makes some arguments to the Jewish people who prided themselves in the covenant of circumcision. Okay? Galatians 5, 2-3, Paul says, Look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. Now, what was the problem in Galatians? these Judaizers were coming in and wanting the Gentiles to get circumcised. And Paul says, listen, if you want to get circumcised, Gentiles, just know one thing. You need to have 100% obedience to the law perpetually. Anybody want to sign up for that? Okay, nobody can do that. It's no advantage to you. Paul says in Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law then Christ died for no purpose. In that passage in Galatians 5.3, Paul uses the word obligated. You're obligated to keep the whole law. And remember what happens if you don't keep the whole law. Paul is saying to the Jews in Romans, you are circumcised and you are priding yourself in circumcision and you're trusting in your ability to keep the whole law. So, What's the standard of the law? Okay, I'm just going to write it up here. You have to keep the law 100% of the time with 
perfection always. Oh, not just in deeds, but in thought and in your words. So in your thoughts, your words, and your deeds, you, if you're going to rely upon the law to be your be-all, end-all, you've got to be 100% perfect 100% of the time in thought, word, and deed. And guess what happens if you don't do that? Paul says in Galatians 3.10, if you don't do that, and by the way, can anybody do that? No. If you don't do that, Galatians 3.10, for all who rely, there's that word rely, bank, trust on works of the law, are under a curse. You're under God's judgment. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You're under a curse if you don't, if you aren't 100% perfect 100% of the time, you are under condemnation. And Paul's saying, Jews, you think you're so good. You're relying upon the law. Remember what the standard is 100% perfection 100% of the time. James 2.10. Whoops, I went too far. James 2.10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So Paul's basically saying this to the Jews. You're boasting in your circumcision. You're boasting in being God's chosen people. You're boasting in the privilege of having the covenant sign. But yet, you're a lawbreaker. You're hypocritical. And you're guilty before God. And this is what would have made the Jews really upset because what does he say in verse 29? Let's go back to Romans now. Let's jump back into Romans. A little diversion there in Genesis. Go back to Romans. Okay, in verse 29, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. What Paul is saying here is what really counts is not an outward physical circumcision, but an inward change through the Holy Spirit. Now, we have a 20-something small group that meets every other Tuesday night, and a few weeks ago we were going through Philippians chapter 3. And one of the descriptions that Paul gives in Philippians chapter 3 of Christians, so you want to know, Paul says, here's a description of of a Christian. He says, we are the true circumcision. And so I told my 20-somethings, the next time somebody asks you if you're a Christian, say, no, I'm not a Christian, I'm the true circumcision. And see how people respond to you when you say that. Uh, No, I'm not a Christian, I'm the true circumcision. Say, what? What are you talking about? That's what Paul says. We are the true circumcision. Here he says, It's not a circumcision done with hands. It's not an outward circumcision. It's an inward circumcision. Okay, so let's let's put our thinking caps on. And I know this is a weird way to think, but this is what the Bible teaches us. What is circumcision? Okay, a removal of something. Okay, well, we won't be too graphic. It's a, a cutting away, a removal of something. Okay, okay, physically. 
What does he say here? A circumcision of the heart. Okay. What does the Bible say about our hearts? Okay, let's look at some of these Old Testament and New Testament passages that talk about a circumcision of the heart, a cutting away of the, the heart. Okay, so Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will, there's the word, circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your souls, and that you may live. All right, let's do a little bit of theology here. Something has to happen so that something can happen. You see the so that there? So let's ask a logical slash theological question. Are you able, verse, okay, are you able to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and live? Are you able to do that without a circumcision of the heart? No, according to that text, right? The Lord will do this so that you will do that. All right, so let's ask a question, why? Okay, when you're going across verses like this, and you're like, that's a weird verse. It's already talking about circumcision of the heart. This is all weird language, but okay, let's just think theologically. Why can't you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength without the circumcision of the heart? What's the condition of your heart before the circumcision of the heart? It's, yeah, it's, it's sinful, it's depraved, it's dead, it's not wanting to respond to God. Now, let's read Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. And I will give you a what? New heart and a new spirit I will put where? Within you, I will remove, what does that sound like? Cut out, I will circumcise, I will remove the heart of stone and from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to do what? Walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So what is the condition of the heart? It's stony. It's dead. It's hostile to God. God has to come and circumcise your heart. Okay, weird language, but let's just keep tracking with what the Bible teaches about this. Colossians 2.11 In Him, Jesus, you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now that's weird. You were made with the circumcision without hands. What does a doctor do? To an eighth, well, not a doctor, but what, is, what did the Moyle do to the eight-day-old eight boy? He came and the doctor did what? Snipped. <laughs> it was a circumcision done with hands by a human. But when we became a Christians, we had a circumcision made without hands. Who did that? The Holy Spirit. Okay, so what is a more familiar term for us of the circumcision of the heart. Because we when's the last time you've talked about being circumcised in your heart? Like yesterday, right? That's what you talk about around the dinner table, huh? That's, that's language you use all the time, right? 
We call it regeneration. Okay? Regeneration. So what does regeneration mean? It comes from two words. So you got a, you got a prefix, re, and you got a generation or generate or genesis type language. So what is regeneration? What does it mean? Okay, so re means again, right? Generate Genesis to be born again. So the Bible speaks of many different ways we have been born again. Or to put it another way, many different ways we've had a circumcision of the heart. So let me just give you some of these metaphors. Well, we saw the one back in Ezekiel. You had a heart of stone, and it was taken out, and you were given a heart of flesh. You had a circumcision done without hands. So be even more weird. Somebody comes up to you and says, Hey, when did you get saved? Oh, I didn't get saved. I had a circumcision made without hands. <laughs> and I'm the true circumcision. You're a little strange. I wouldn't use that language because you'd probably freak people out, but it's biblical language. Okay, so 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's what? A new creation. What's past? The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What's the old that's passed away? Our old heart, our old life of sin, our depravity. That has passed away. We become new. We're a new creation. Okay? Okay, so Ephesians 2.5. Worded a little bit differently. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved. So what's the, what's the wording here? We've been made alive. Okay? So we've been made alive. We've been born again. We've been circumcised in the heart. We've been given a new heart or new creation. Okay, Colossians 2.13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses. And then Titus 3, 5. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So let's go back to Romans for a moment. Paul is offending these Jews, because what are they saying? I'm a Jew because I have physically been circumcised. I'm God's special person. And Paul says, baloney. Who cares if you're circumcised because you're breaking the law? It doesn't matter. What really matters is, is, have you had a heart circumcision? Have you been born again? Have you been saved by grace? Have you experienced this new life? Have you had this regeneration? Are you a new creation? doesn't matter how faithful you are to trying to obey the Ten Commandments. It doesn't matter if you've been circumcised because after all, you're being hypocritical, Jews. What really matters is an inward heart change. Has that happened to you? So here's the application question for us. Have you experienced this internal washing and rebirth by the power of the Holy Spirit? Does it matter if you've been baptized or you go to church, or you perceive yourself to be religious, what really counts is the new birth, 
that makes you alive in Christ. There's a lot of people that have done a lot of religious things. But it doesn't mean anything if you haven't had an inward change, that the the Lord has given you a new heart. He's taken out that dead, stony heart and implanted a new heart, the Holy Spirit, the very Holy Spirit of God within you. Now, if if the very Holy Spirit of God comes and lives within you, you're going to be a new creation. You're going to be a new person. You're going to be born again. Okay? So, Paul has done two things here. Paul has deconstructed two major foundations in the life of a Jew. I mean, he's, he's, he's shooting some strong bullets here. He's laying down the gauntlet. First thing we looked at tonight, they're boasting and having the Ten Commandments and being privileged with biblical knowledge. But yet, what are they doing? They're not practicing what they preach. They're ruining their testimony to the outside world. They're preaching against all these types of sins, but living in the sins themselves. Ultimate in hypocrisy. But we've got the Ten Commandments. We're God's special people. Okay, and the second thing he deconstructs is, well, we have the special sign of circumcision to show that they were indeed God's chosen people. So Paul goes straight for the law and circumcision. Okay, so at this point... These Jews are outraged at Paul. First of all, for even suggesting that they're sinners and guilty before God. Because they thought by merely being Jewish, they were safe from God's judgment because they had the law and circumcision on their side. God would never judge us because we have the Ten Commandments and we have circumcision. That makes us safe. And if we die as circumcised male, Abraham's there at the gates of hell making sure we don't go in. So, we move into chapter 3, which chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, is some of the hardest parts in the book of Romans to understand. But what Paul's going to do is Paul's going to anticipate objections. (laughs) Paul's going to be like, okay, I know what you're going to say. I've offended you. I've deconstructed everything that's precious to you. I've, I've made your precious Jewish world come crumbling down. I understand what you're going to say. And so what Paul's going to say is, and it's kind of surprising. Let's just look at the question. So chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage is it for being a Jew? If I've just deconstructed everything Jewish, is there an advantage to being a Jew? And What's the value of circumcision? So, you'd, so Paul says, listen. I've just deconstructed your Jewishness and I've deconstructed circumcision and I'm going to ask the question, what advantage is it anyway? And what would you expect Paul to say? Eh, it really doesn't matter. Let's move on. Is that what Paul says? Let's read what he says. It's kind of surprising. Paul says in verse 2, well, much in every way. He doesn't say no, it's of no advantage. He's like, hey, there's a lot of advantages here. Much in every way, there's a lot of advantage. Okay, to begin with, and Paul's going to list them, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means let God be true, though every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? 
I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Okay, so Paul has just deconstructed their Jewishness and circumcision and the law, and he asks, well, what... Is there any advantage to being a Jew after all? Is there any advantage to being circumcised? And Paul says, there's a lot. Let me tell you what these are, because you're going to be bringing these objections against me. So Paul brings up four rhetorical questions to anticipate these objections. Now, these are probably objections he has heard in his ministry. We don't really know, but obviously he's anticipating what the people are going to say when he's been teaching this. So here's objection number one. Paul's teaching undermines the importance of the Jews having the Old Testament. Look at verse 2. Much in every way. To begin with, here's the first thing. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, what's an oracle? What the oracles are? That, that's included in that. What, what, what's the word oracles actually mean? And that may not a word that you guys... So oracles. If I, take out, if I take out the C and the E, what does it say? Oral. Okay. So oracles are the, the words or the truths or the teachings of God. So when the Bible talks about the oracles of God, it's probably talking about the Ten Commandments, but probably the totality of the Old Testament. The oracles of God probably meant the totality of the Old Testament. And so the Jews did have a privileged position. Did God give His word to any other nation? No. As a matter of fact, Deuteronomy 4.8 says that. What great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law I set before you today? And what's the answer? There is no nation. God did not give His Ten Commandments to the Canaanites. God did not give His law or, or, or enter into a covenant with some um, Chaldean on the backside of Ur that's name was not Abraham. <laughs> okay. So Psalm 147, 19-20. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. So Paul is saying, listen, Jews, you have a major privilege that no other nation had. So there is, you do have an advantage, Jews. As much as I've been hard on you, you have a great advantage. You have been entrusted. We, Paul saying as Jews, have been entrusted with the very oracles of God. We've been entrusted with God's Word. Now, I'm going to ask a very personal question. What is your response to the very oracles of God? What is your attitude toward God's Word? So what I want us to do is I want us to take a journey real briefly through Psalm 119. Okay, so let's go to Psalm 119 because Psalm 119 is the longest book in the Bible. 
It has more verses than any book in the Bible. And Psalm 19 is all about the Bible, okay? So I want you to see the attitude that the psalmist has toward God's Word, okay? And so I want you to evaluate yourself. As we read these, are these your attitudes? Okay, so let's just go through Psalm 119. So I'm just going to put these verses up here so that we can go to them. So let's read verses 9 through 11. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Okay, let's just, for the sake of fun, on your sheet there, let's do an activity together. Okay, so... In verses 9 through 11, what's the main thing that the psalmist does with God's Word? He does what with it? He stores it up in his heart. He memorizes it. He hides it. Do you store up God's Word in your heart? Do you memorize it? Do you you have that Word in you so that you can be pure? All right, Uh, let's read 14 through 16. 14 through 16 says, In the way of your testimonies I delight as much and in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Okay, so what are some words used there? You guys tell me. You got what? Okay, you got delight. You got meditate, you got not forget, didn't it say fix your eyes? Okay, so think about what we're doing here so far. Okay, do you store up God's Word in your heart? Do you delight in God's Word? Do you meditate on God's Word? Do you not forget God's Word? Do you fix your eyes on God's Word? Okay, verse 18. Verse 18 says... Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. What's he praying for? That God would open. Do you pray for God to open your eyes to, the, to, the, to his word? Let me just ask you a basic question. How many times have you sat there and read the Bible and not understood what you're reading? And you kind of have to back up and like, what was that? Do you ever just stop and pray and say, Lord, I'm about to read the Bible, and I'm kind of clueless. I do this a lot when I'm preparing for sermons. Lord, I'm about to read the Bible, and I'm kind of clueless. I pray this psalm, open my eyes that I may see what's there. Lord, I need your help to open my eyes to understand this. Okay, verses 47 through 48. Let's read that. 47 through 48. What do we have there? We've got... For I find delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Okay, what words do you have there? You've got delights again, right? And you got meditates again, but what's, what's he say there twice? 
He loved. Okay, so do you love God's word? Do you delight in it? Do you meditate? Okay, verse 97. What does verse 97 say? I've got to turn the page because this is... Verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is the meditation all day long. Okay, so there's, again, love, meditation. Okay, all right, now we're getting up to the really high verses. Verse 160. Verse 160 says, The sum of your word is truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. This is not so much an attitude towards God's word, but it's talking about what God's word. God's word is the truth. The truth that endures forever. The sum of truth. Do you come to God's word as the absolute truth? Then Psalm 162. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. Okay, so what word does he have there? I rejoice. Okay, and then the last one, 169. I, oh, let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. So help me understand. Okay, this is just a few. Okay, so how many verses are in Psalm 119? 176 verses. And we're just looking at maybe seven or eight. But let's ask the attitude. Do you store up God's word in your heart? Do you memorize God's word? Do you delight in it? Do you meditate on it? Do you not forget it? Do you fix your eyes on it? Do you open your eyes to his word or ask God to open your, his, your eyes to his word? Do you delight in it? Do you meditate on it? Do you love it? Do you love it? Do you meditate on it? Is, do you see it as the absolute truth that endures forever? Do you rejoice in it? And do you pray for understanding? Is that your attitude toward God's word? So back to Romans, Paul says to the Jews, listen, you have a great privilege, Jews. No other nation had God's word the way you did. You had the Old Testament. You had the very oracles of God. You, you knew his written word. You've got the beauty of the Old Testament. Okay, so objection number two, back to Romans. Paul's teaching shows that God must not be faithful after all. Okay, verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. What if the Jewish people didn't believe the gospel? What if God's chosen people rejected it? Now, this is happening during Paul's time. Many Jews are rejecting the gospel. He's going to address this more fully in chapters 9 through 11. But right now he just kind of introduces it. Okay, So the question is, if God has chosen these people to be his own, the Jews, and yet they're not accepting the gospel, then that kind of puts God's faithfulness in question. God must have messed up here because his own people aren't believing him. And Paul says no matter how many people disobey God, even Jews... It can't stop God from being faithful to himself. Let every man be a liar. If every single person on earth was a liar, it wouldn't change God's character. God would still be faithful. 
And then he quotes there in verse 4 from Psalm 51. Psalm 51, 3 through 4, is when David is confessing his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. When David's confessing sin to God, he's saying, listen, God, you have every right to punish me. I've done wicked. I've sinned against you. I have transgressed your law, and I'm not going to downplay it. I'm not going to try to um, cover it up. You, have ev- you are absolutely, totally right to judge my sin. So question, application question. When you confess, or when we confess our sins to God, do we acknowledge that we have sinned against Him alone and He has the right to punish us? And are we thankful for Christ where God punished Jesus in our place? Sometimes this is off the subject, but sometimes when we confess sin, we can be very generic, can't we? Lord, please forgive my sins. Well, let's be a little bit more specific. Lord, please forgive me for the lust in my heart that caused me to dot, dot, dot. Or Lord, please forgive me for the anger in my heart that caused me to dot, dot. Be specific when you confess sins and then realize that God does have every right to punish you. But if you're a Christian, He punished those sins in Jesus, not in you. And be thankful. Now, we still come and we confess those because we're not giving God information He doesn't already know. To confess means to agree with God. To agree with God that you um, are sinning. Okay? All right, so number three, objection number three, Paul's teaching brings God's justice into question. Okay, verse um, five, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. Okay, who's Paul addressing this whole time? The Jews at this point. And what are the Jews thinking? If I'm circumcised, I'm not going to hell. If I've got the Ten Commandments, I'm not going to hell. I'm not a Gentile, so I'm not going to hell. And what is Paul saying? He's saying, I know what you're going to say, Jews. Why would God judge us? We're His chosen people. We would never be judged. That would be unjust for God to judge us because we're His chosen people people and paul's saying listen when he says i speak in a human way he's basically saying this is such a dumb question i'm going to answer it anyway yeah jews god has every right to judge you paul sees this objection pretty much as blasphemous and unworthy of a response but he's going to answer anyway and here's his point he's basically saying if god were said to be unjust and bring wrath upon the unrighteous Jews, then he would also be unjust to punish the Gentile world as well. So what Paul's saying is, listen, I'm not just picking on you Jews, but listen, my whole argument going all the way back to chapter 1, verse 18, is that Jews are under punishment for their sin and Gentiles are under punishment for their sin. And so, yes, God has the right to judge both Jew and Gentile for your sin. God 
is not unjust to do that, especially to you Jews who think that you're immune because you're circumcised. God has every right to punish you. Genesis 18.25 says this, Far be it for for you to do such a thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall the judge of all the earth do what is just? Shall God, the judge of all the earth, do what is just? And what's the answer to that? Yes. And so here's an application question. Okay, so these Jews are stewing. And they're thinking to themselves, how dare Paul tell us that God has a right to judge us? When we're the circumcised, we have the law, we have the very oracles of God, we are self-righteous, prideful Jews We should not be under any condemnation. Okay, let's make this personal to us, okay? Do we truly believe? This is a hard question. Okay, We can can cognitively say it, but do we truly believe there will be a final judgment where God will do right? Do we truly believe in a literal hell as offensive and off-putting as it may be to our culture? Yes, we believe that, but do we truly believe that? That the the judge of all the earth will do what is right. Okay. Paul's saying, listen, God is not unjust. God will do what is right. And then here's the final objection, and Paul's going to get to this later on, but he's kind of just addressing it here. The final objection is that Paul's teaching somehow distorts God's truth about grace. Okay, so there must have been some who accused Paul of teaching, um, the, the theological term is, I don't expect you to remember this, it's called antinomianism. That's a big word there. Anti-disestablishmentarianism. No, it's antinomianism against the law. Here's what it was. There must have been some who accused Paul of teaching the pe- that people could sin all they wanted to, because God would automatically forgive them and, and give them grace. It's called cheap grace. Okay, so you've heard me say this before. Some people have the attitude, I really like to sin, and God really likes to forgive, so I'm going to just keep sinning so God keeps forgiving, and we'll just keep this arrangement up for a long time because it's really fun. Okay, notice what Paul says there. Verse 8, And why not do evil that good may come? as some people slanderously charge us with saying. Why not keep doing evil so that good may come? Now, go to Romans chapter 6 for a moment because Paul addresses this later on, and we'll get to this probably in a few, maybe months, the rate we're going, weeks. After he addresses the gospel and justification by faith alone, there's going to be some people that say, well, Paul, if you truly teach God's free salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, Christ alone, that's going to make people just feel like they can sin all they want. Because after all, they ask Jesus in their heart and they can live however they want because after all, once saved, always saved. Paul, if you really teach grace, that's going to give people the excuse to go live however they want. Notice what he says in Romans 6, 1 through 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it. And he goes on through the rest of chapter 6 to unpack that. But right here in chapter 2, he's just basically bringing up this 
teaching that some people were accusing him of having that Paul didn't teach. So here's another application question for us. And we'll get to this pretty strongly again when we get to Romans chapter 6. But here's just an application question. Do you abuse God's grace by living in unrepentant sin? In other words, do you view salvation as your get-out-of-hell-free card, but you live however you want with no regard for God's Word? Sadly, there's a lot of Christians that live that way. I asked Jesus into my heart. I walked an aisle. Hey, you Baptists believe once saved, always saved, so I'm good. I know I can't lose my salvation, so... I can live however I want because after all, at the end of, the, end of my life, I'm going to just automatically get to go to heaven because after all, I was saved by grace. Now, is it true that we're saved by grace? Is it true that we can't lose our salvation? But does that automatically mean we can live however we want? No, that's an abuse of those doctrines, okay? So what's the bottom line here? In chapter 2, into chapter 3 of Romans, what's the bottom line? These Jews, now remember, he'd already dealt with the Gentiles. We dealt with that a few weeks ago. These Jews were self-confident in their knowledge of the law. Remember, they could teach the Gentiles in their sleep. They'd been growing up and going to synagogues. They pride themselves on knowing all these things. But what was their problem? They didn't practice what they preached. They were hypocrites. They were ruining their testimony to the Gentiles. They were not doing, they were preaching and railing against adultery and against stealing, but yet, they were doing all these things in secret or you know, they were just sending their hearts out. So that was one of the issues. The other issue that we talked about too is these Jews were self-confident in circumcision. We're circumcised. But what Paul says is what they really needed was that inward circumcision of the heart, that regeneration, the power of the Spirit, the taking out the heart of stone and giving a heart of flesh. And so the Jews were twisting Paul's teaching, and they were maligning God's character. So over the past three weeks, guys and gals, all the way back to chapter 118 to chapter 3, verse 8. It's all one unit of thought. So chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 8, here's what Paul has been teaching. So okay, I'm going to just summarize what we've been talking about the past three weeks in two sentences, Okay. It's like, why can't I just come and got those two sentences and I had to sit here for an hour and a half? Okay, here we go. <laughs> the Gentiles stand condemned in their sin for suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and becoming idolaters. Paul points his barrel at the Gentiles first. The Jews are sitting back in the stands saying, go for it, Paul. Let them have it. Let the Gentiles have it. They deserve it. They're pagan, uncircumcised idolaters. Give it to them. And then Paul turns to them and says, just you wait. You Jews stand condemned in your sin because you're self-righteous, you're judgmental, you're hypocritical, and you failed to obey God's law as His chosen people with all the privileges you had. You are ruining your testimony, and you are just as guilty as the Gentiles in your sin. Okay? So I'm just going to read to you verse 9. We'll get to this next week, but here I'm going to give you Paul's conclusion, and then we're going to unpack it next week. So notice what Paul says in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off than who? 
Gentiles? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are what? Under sin. That's been his argument from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 8. And then in chapter 3, verse 9, Paul brings it together and says, here's my charge. Every single person is under sin. Therefore, all human, whoops, all humans are under sin and rightfully deserve God's wrath to be revealed. Now, there's a word that shows up about four times in this passage of Scripture when Paul is talking about Jews and Gentiles. And we talked about it a few weeks ago, and it's sometimes misunderstood, but the word is wrath. Now remember, wrath is not God's out-of-control rage. God had a bad hair day, and so he's throwing lightning bolts down like Zeus. Or he's like an infant in the corner fighting over toys. It's, It's God's settled righteous opposition to sin as a result of his character as a holy God and his right to punish sin. So I just want you to go back and look. So go back to chapter 1, verse 18. Chapter 1, verse 18. How does Paul start this conversation about judgment? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is revealed. That's how he starts it. Okay, go to chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You're storing up wrath. God's wrath is being revealed. Okay, look at verses 8 and 9. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil the jew first and the greek and then chapter 3 verse 5 but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of god what shall we say that god is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us all throughout this paul is saying basically over and over again gentiles you deserve wrath Jews, you deserve wrath. And God is righteous to pour out that wrath. Now go back to chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Because that's the heartbeat of the gospel. And that's the heartbeat of the gospel. It's the heartbeat of, of the book of Romans. It's the thesis. Okay, so I want us to keep going back to chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. And there's two important truths that we, that we see there. Remember, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew versed and to the Greek. So the gospel is salvation. So number one, it's the power of God. God's power is manifest in the gospel. But then verse 17, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So in the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we see two things. We see the power of God for salvation, and we see the righteousness required for salvation that God gives as a gift. So Paul has announced the good news first. Hey, the gospel's for salvation for Jews and Gentiles. It's God's power for salvation. There's a righteousness given to you in the gospel that you can't earn on your own. It's given to you. And so from verses 118 to 3.8, here's what Paul has done. Okay? 
He's basically said, before we can receive the good news of salvation, before we can truly understand this gospel and the power of God and the righteousness of God and the grace of God, before we can truly understand that, we have to be laid bare in our sins before a holy God. And we need to understand that He has the right to pour out His wrath on sinners in judgment. Whether that's a pagan Gentile worshiping some moon somewhere, or a self-righteous, circumcised Jew who thinks he can obey the Ten Commandments and has grown up in the synagogue, and you and me. All of us deserve wrath, but God gives grace in the gospel. And so we need to understand the bad news before we can truly understand the good news. Or the good news won't be good because we don't think, it's, we, we don't think we're that bad. So Paul's saying, listen, there is salvation in the gospel. But before I get there, I need to really expose you Gentiles and you Jews, both on equal level playing field, showing that you both are under sin. And so that's where Paul, that's where we're going to end tonight. And next week, we're going to unpack what that looks like in specifics to be under sin. So do we have any questions here in the last, how much time, last 10 minutes tonight? Or was that... And I asked earlier before the people, before a lot of you came in, am I going too fast or is this the right pace? I'm trying to break this down to smaller chunks because I know it's an hour and a half of sitting and listening to me, and that's kind of scary. At least it would be for me. Any questions? Yes, Shauna. Today's Jews is a hard thing because there's many different branches of Judaism okay so like for example like Ben Shapiro and if a lot of you guys listen to Ben Shapiro he's like a conservative commentator he's like a he's a conservative orthodox Jew that wears the yarmulke and observes Sabbath and the kosher laws and you know goes to synagogue and is very upright and religious that would probably be very similar to what a Jew would be back in the time of Jesus's day to the I mean without the temple system and stuff like that um, so there's like that extreme. And then on the other end of it, there's what we would call like ethnic Jews. They would be like people that would trace their lineage back to being Jewish, but they're secular or atheist and have no um, religious beliefs at all. So, for example, like Steven Spielberg or, you know, he's, he considers himself to be ethnically Jew, but he's not, you know, a practicing Jew. And, and, so, and, in, and on that continuum, there's a bunch of different slices in between that. So it's kind of hard to say what does what does a Jew, depends on which stripe or quote-unquote, I don't want to use the word denomination because they don't have denominations, but there's different, there's different ways that Jews practice their Judaism. So I guess the continuum would be an ethnic Jew who would say I'm Jewish by ethnicity, but they could be an atheist, like Bernie Sanders, okay, running for president. He could, he's an ethnic Jew, but he's definitely not. I mean, he's a secular, he's a secular atheist, okay? But he, he considers himself Jewish. To somebody, I'm just putting like, I'm putting secular examples that maybe, you know, to like a person like Ben Shapiro, who's like, wears the yarmulke and, you know, observes Sabbath and kosher dietary things and goes to synagogue and didn't, and waited to have, you know, waited till he was married before he had sex and, and, and abided by a lot of the, the more moral Jewish things. So I don't know if that answers your question, Shauna. Would they, would they still consider themselves, though, Um, in a sense, yes. I would encourage you guys to do this, okay? I don't know, I don't know if you listen to Ben Shapiro, but you can go back on YouTube 
um, he interviewed on one of his Sunday specials John MacArthur. Okay, so John MacArthur preached the gospel to Ben Shapiro and they talked about the differences. Okay, um, and so they would say, they would say that they are banking on their obedience to a moral code and being a good person to be right with God. And they're still waiting for a Messiah to come to fulfill that messianic role that they see in the Old Testament, but it's not Jesus. So it's still a works-based, golden rule type, be good. Um, and Ben Shapiro will even say, he's like, you know, the difference between Judaism is we, we focus on outward action. You Christians focus on an internal change of heart. That's the difference between our two religions. Yours is a religion of the heart where, the, where God changes your heart. Ours is a religion of obedience and outward actions because that's how you can be judged by what you do outwardly. So he even admits that's the difference between Christianity and, and um, Judaism, the way he, he would practice it. There, we have friends that are saved, but they are Jewish also, so they still do the traditional mm-hmm. things. I think sometimes I feel a little gypped that we don't do them just because they're more family-oriented. They, sure. They have a lot of traditions that I'm kind of jealous of on some level. Mm-hmm. There's nothing prescribed in the Bible for us to do those things. Um, so, like, we're not told that, like, as a matter of fact, Paul even says, don't put that burden on the Gentiles. Like, all those kosher things and those special days. Like, for us Gentiles, we shouldn't have that burden to do those things. Now, if they're Jewish and they become Christians and they still believe Jesus is the only way, but yet they still practice some of the, you know, like Passover and things like that, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. It's just that's more of a um, matter of conscience where they shouldn't say to you as a Gentile, you should be doing these things. And I don't know if you should feel a sense of being, I guess you could feel a sense of being jip, but just the rich, like the richness of it, I guess. Right. Or, more of the traditional side of things, because yeah. they know a lot more of uh-huh. the Bible as, as far as more historical things. And why sure. Yeah, they definitely have a background that we don't because they're steeped in more in their Old Testament and understand some of those things more, maybe more than we have growing up in a predominantly Gentile context. Do you think on some level they knew Paul's background and that's why they, kind of, what we were talking about in Romans, mm-hmm. that they kind of fought him on it? We could, they could be. We, we don't know per se um, like we do in some of the other letters that they were, you know, they could have been like, well, who, you know, who are you? tell us how to live because you used to be this righteous, fair. I think the main thing for us to put our shoes in is this. Like, we're not Jewish, but we can have the attitude of a Jew. As a Christian, we can say, I don't do those bad things that those non-Christians do. And I read my Bible and I go to church. And I'm a lot better than those non-Christians out there. And yet do the same things that they do but yet look down upon them, but never see it in yourself. And I think Paul's calling the Jews out for looking up, like elevating themselves and then looking down on the Gentiles and they say, listen, you guys are both, you both need the gospel. You're both sinners. They, they're sinning in different ways than you are, but you're both equally on the field of sinners. And so as Christians, we are no better than non-Christians. As a matter of fact, there may be some areas in our life that we're worse 
Like if you were to take a moral non-Christian and a struggling Christian, you put their life side by side, you may say, that Christian has more problems than the non-Christian. The point is, is that we've been saved by grace and we're no better than them. It's just we've been saved. And so as Martin Luther said, here's what we do. We are basically telling one beggar, we are a beggar going to another beggar telling them where to find food. I'm a beggar. You're a beggar. Hey, I found Jesus or Jesus found me. Let me take you to where you can receive the grace that I receive. Not because I'm any better, but because I was just as bad as you, but God showed me grace. I think we just need to have a humility um, because I think there's a lot of self-righteousness. I'm not downplaying sin and saying we should like minimize sin, but I think there can be a lot of self-righteousness that does damage to your witness. If you're always outspoken about this or this or that, and yet you have some major areas of weakness in your life that you're not aware of that may be hurting your testimony. Does that make sense? I'm not saying you have to be perfect. I'm just saying we need to, need to, be, we need to be more self-aware. Not so focused on the big bad world out there not being aware of our own sin, um, but, but be, be being a repenter ourselves and being one that, that focuses on, on gospel obedience. Make sense? Okay. Let's pray. You guys ready? Father, thank you for another good time tonight in your word. And Lord, in all things, we want to be humble. We want to be thankful. We want to be people that rejoice in your word. And we want to be thankful that you saved us by grace. You spared us from the wrath that you could have very easily poured out upon us because of our sin. But because of Jesus in our place, we're forgiven. And so, Lord, help us not to look down upon others or think that we're better or all that. But, Lord, help us to see ourselves as deserving of your wrath, but saved by grace. And help us to tell others where they can receive the same forgiveness that we received. And so, Lord, help us to not be judgmental. Help us not to be self-righteous, but to be humble and to realize that you're a God of grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.